Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. It is another quarantine edition of Live Laugh Leafs. Mike Stevens, anything different going on inside uh, your own four walls over there? Uh, no, it's the exact same. We are, uh, like, the days have ceased to have any meaning, and I know it's that's become, like, a meme at this point, but truly, I, I've lost all track of time. Like, I thought today I thought today was Monday. I'm like, oh, we're going to get a good start on the podcast on a Monday. It'll be great. And then look at my phone. No, it's Sunday. So uh, my mind is just completely uh, just discombobulated, more than I feel, usual. I feel like I've hit a little bit of a milestone or at least, like, a, a mid-quarantine crisis through this. Crisis. I've ordered, I've ordered a Peloton. Oh my gosh! I've gotten you... th- I've gotten through like the really difficult stage of growing a beard where it's now par- part of me. Like it's not itchy anymore. It is a part of my being, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm pretty desperate for some sort of physical activity. So that bike's coming, but I have to wait about five weeks for it. So now, it Justin, be, we might be out of the house in five weeks, and then I'll just have something collecting dust in here. Justin, this is a safe space. I want you to tell me. And completely candid, candidly, if you're buying this on your on your own will, or if your significant other is forcing you to buy this Peloton, uh, I might be forcing her. We're gonna we're gonna stage our own little commercial. So and she and we'll recreate that meme because I uh, definitely spearheaded this project. Okay, because what you need to do is you need to force your your wife now um, to uh, to document her Peloton, I guess, journey in vlog form. Yeah, that's exactly what's exactly. going to happen. I mean, it's going to be more of a content thing than a- an actual like form of trying to self or better self betterment. I guess that would be the thing. Exactly. I mean, my I, I tried to grow a beard to the beard point um, before I did. Like, I can grow a beard, but uh, my girlfriend made me shave it, and then she asked me if I have any pictures of myself with a beard. I was like, oh, I don't think so. But like, do you want you want to see what I look like with it? She's like, no, you should burn them. And so <laughs> I thought that's a good idea to kind of go back to clean shaven. This is definitely the longest I've ever went with without shaving for sure. Like this yeah. is, I've never made it out of that stage and somehow I made it out of the stage this time. I mean, these are, uh, you know, unique times, pre- unprecedented times. And mm-hmm. I was finally able to get through, uh, but for work reasons, I won't bring it up yet, but uh, it looks great by the it way. It might actually have to go soon. So that's a little bit disappointing, uh, but I digress. 
We do have something pretty exciting today, though, which is a conversation I guess we, we teased last time, which was a deep dive into Mike Babcock. It is pretty... Uh, it makes sense that for us to do it because we have actually never really spoke at length about Babcock. It's really been cracks at uh, the job that the, you know, one of the most famous coaches in history did with the Maple Leafs uh, during our, you know, post-game podcast during the season. Again, I've mentioned that we've, and it's no secret that we started sort of halfway through the season or after the halfway point. So Mike Babcock was not even on our radars, but uh, both of us lived through the Babcock era uh, and it's time to exchange notes on that. But before we get to that, we will touch on a little bit of news uh, that happened this week. Mm. Uh, for me, the theme was sort of the shift from, at least in the NHL and, you know, pundits and insiders and everyone uh, talking about what could be next. It seemed like the theme of the week was the shift between you know, the idea of neutral sites to centralized hosts. So I'll just serve that up to you. Uh, what did you take from this past week in terms of NHL news? Um, I mean, it's it's tough. It, it, I like how optimistic at least the leagues are being. Like the NBA is now opening up the, uh, they're saying they're at least they're opening up um, their practice facilities in states that are relaxing sort of the stay-at-home orders. But at the same time, like, I don't think we're in a point in society where we can be relaxing these stay-at-home orders. Like we have, like Georgia is opening up, and you know, bowling alleys in the midst of a pandemic. And and what are you going to let the Atlanta Hawks go back to the practice facility with that? I think it's look sports. Everyone needs sports right now, and I try to be as optimistic about this as possible. But you just can't. We talked about this in the last podcast, but you can't bring them back if it's not safe. And I don't like. I don't know how realistic of an idea it is to have all 700 NHL players go to one city, isolate themselves from their families for months on end, especially with the fact that they're going to be playing. They're, they're apparently going to be playing regular season games. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't know how, how safe or how smart or how even just healthy on a human level that is. Cause this is a time like, you know, we were, we're talking about how we're going crazy with beards and, you know, Pelotons and whatnot, but this is also a really mentally taxing time. Like I'm going to be honest, I'm going crazy here. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't been able to see, you know, I, I go home like once a week to do laundry and I bar I can barely, you know, like touch my parents or anything. You know, it, it's weird. And pe right now is a time for human connection and for human sort of uh, coming together. And I don't know how these families or, or these athletes are going to be OK with being away from their families in one in a city that, you know, they they might never have been to before uh, during the midst of an unprecedented thing. It would be great to have sports back. But if it's not safe and it's not healthy from both a health and a mental health standpoint, then I don't I don't know how it, how it moves forward. So uh, we'll we'll kind of see what what happens there, I guess. Well, you mentioned the human element. I think sports is going to play a key role into that because I think a lot a lot of this is you know society is sort of down on everything right now because we we've been taking all like the you know not the luxuries in life but the uh, the things that people really hold dear, which is you know human interaction, socializing and so on and so forth and sports is a big part of that as well but th we're missing those things and because we're not going to get those you know the ability to go to a restaurant the ability to go watch a game i think sports is going to play a major role in at least sort of healing us a little bit i think the nfl draft was a huge example of that 55 million people apparently watched the nfl draft that is a remarkable number. So I think we are in desperate need of this. But how is it going to be done safely? I think they can figure out a way to have sports happen in a, in a safe fashion. The only problem is they have to make the right decisions here, obviously, because if they make one mistake, it could cost them dearly. Uh, and that's, I guess, that transitions to the idea of Toronto being 
one of the four per potential centralized sites. We both live in Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to know how you feel about the idea of that potentially happening because uh, there are tons of things going uh, Toronto is doing an exceptional job, I believe, in this yes. pandemic from, a, All of from Ontario. a societal standard. I mean, not just that we don't have many cases here in Toronto, but the fact that people are actually adhering to the rules. I live in Liberty Village, one of the most you know, social areas in Toronto, I believe. Uh, and I look out my balcony window and it is absolutely empty at all times. People are doing a really good job and there are a lot of people complaining about it. But in, in large part, I think everyone's are doing a really good job here. But if we throw something else into the mix here, such as, you know, the Leafs playing playoff games, are, are we as a society going to be able to control that? And if we are, if Toronto is going to host these games, does that in in a way, prevent other things from happening. You know, reopening the financial district, getting the economy going in maybe a month or two months. If we invite, you know, hundreds of hockey players to fill up hotels and to, and th these people have to be, you know, safeguarded with their lives because it's so important for the league to get this right. I just worry that it's going to come as a sacrifice to other things. Uh, and that wouldn't be a good look for Toronto. No, you're right. And like Ontario has been doing, like to your point, a remarkable job. Like I think that the reports came out the other day that um, their best case scenario, they said they had uh, 20,000 uh, people in ICU beds and we're, I think it's 1,500 or 15,000 or something that's going on right now. Like we're trending better than Health Ontario's best case scenario model. So that's fantastic. And I like, I live in Kensington Market. That's one of the most densely packed open air you know social places on the planet like i you know there is i live right across the street from a, a bar and or two bars actually right next to each other and every single pretty much every single day um night of the week it is packed it is loud there are people there there's ubers coming up and it's dead there hasn't been a single person around there not in the parks anywhere it's been fantastic but at the same time, you're you're now taking a, a, a place that has made great progress. It could honestly be looked at as like a model for how this is going other than maybe BC and Canada because BC's handled it tremendously. Um, and then you're bringing 750 new people into the city and centralizing them in what? Downtown? They're going to be in, a, in an airport, in a hotel. And if they're not, then we go back to the human element. These people are going to what? Be like, you know, cordoned off into an airport Hilton for two to three months or something like this is you can't do that. So if this could like we have to again, that's why I thought that this, the smaller towns like the North Dakota, stuff like that, were, were a good idea because the population is smaller. It's not it's not as dense. Um, there's ways that you can isolate those players without it being pretty much them locked in a building uh, for for four months. Um and even I think one of the other uh, one of the other proposed places is Columbus too, and I think that would even be better than Toronto because at least Columbus I feel like is I don't know the geography of Columbus, but I feel like it's more spread out even from an urban standpoint. So you can at least maybe cordon off one section of, of where everything is to have these players. But bringing 750 players in here who could potentially infest all of each other, like one player who's they're all going to be living together, all going to be playing together, sweating on each other, ble bleeding on each other. It just seems like it's an it's a risk. And to your point as well, sports is going like the NFL draft was the best part of the last couple months for me. For a second, it felt like life was, you know, was normal again. It was fantastic. I saw the guy taking a dump in the background of Mike Vrabel's draft room. It was awesome. But um, at the, sports, this can't come at the expense of others. And so if this is going to jeopardize the, uh, you know, the, the progress that Toronto, that Ontario on a whole has made just so we can get, you know, uh, you know, uh, finish out the regular season, then... Uh, 
we have to weigh the risk reward options. We have to wait, you know, we have to weigh whether or not it's it's it can be smart and feasible to wait to bring this back. I want sports back just as much as anybody. Heck, we dude, we do a show about the Leafs. I like I got I mean I, I, my dream job is to talk about the Leafs, and I got to do it for three months before the world shut down. I want to get back to it. I want to keep doing this, but I don't want to do it if it puts people who are in high risk situations. I don't want to put I don't want to do it if it puts the the if it if it knocks back the timeline of us being able to resume our regular lives. So it, 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 there's a real kind of it, we need to leave it up to the experts to to figure this out. And I kind of trust the experts that are working on it now in our case more than I do maybe across the border. Uh, I, yeah, I'm with you. I do believe it can work though. I, I think all it's really going to take is you know, you fill up two hotels with three and four teams apiece because it's probably going to be divisions, right? You're going to be able to play play those games and then it's quickly going to be whittled down to, what, four teams at that point as well. Mm. So it, this is going to move, it could move relatively quick. You just need to create quarantines in these hotels. You, you, you're you limit, limiting contact because you're going bus to rink to, to hotel. It is a huge sacrifice on for the players who are going to be away from their families for a long time. They have been with their families for a very long time in the last two months. So maybe there's a, there's a trade-off there. There's probably going to be some resistance to it from some players. But ultimately, I think they're going to try and get this done and it will happen. I just... I am conflicted because as much as I will, it'll be awesome if the NHL was in Toronto. I worry about, and and certainly from a from a career standpoint, that means I could potentially cover these games. So that's important as well. Um, but I do worry about the excitement that it might provide this city and how that might blur mm-hmm. the lines of what's acceptable. And if never the even thought about in the that. playoffs and all of a sudden people want to be outside and want to and want to be with their friends when they watch these games. That what's, that's what worries me a little bit. Now, that's not really Toronto-dependent, uh, but I guess the other side of the coin is that I'm, I'm slightly worried that we have. there's got to be so much that's so much going to have to come into rebuilding the city from an economic standpoint. People need to get back to work. That doesn't mean they all have to go down to the office downtown, but some of them will have to to get this thing going again. Uh, and I just don't think that you want to sacrifice any of that just to host the NHL games, but Toronto can do it without breaking a sweat. We have the infrastructure here and I believe it can happen safely. Um, so uh, I never of, even thought about that sort of conflicted there, but uh, I mean, it's just not going to be a perfect scenario. Yeah. I, you know what? Now that you bring it up, I, again, I never even thought about that. Like think about uh, That's a huge risk. That's something that I think we need to start talking about because animal crossing came out and people were still, were lining up for it. And we haven't had a big sort of, momentous thing that's happened so everyone's kind of being able to stay inside the weather's been pretty awful so but once you get that first huge alert and if the Leafs make the playoffs and then go far I mean like no matter how well Toronto has handled this no matter how well Ontario's handled this there will be idiots who go out and congregate and go to each other's houses to watch these games and you know it's 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 just are we at the point locally where we can account for something like that like where if 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 there are if we you know factor in these you know the idiots essentially of the world who who start to who get caught up in the not idiots but the people who um we can we account for the the percentage of people who will use this as like a spurn to go back out in society and you know and, and congregate will that disrupt the model will that still be will we still be able to flatten the curve in that regard and I don't know if we can so um again I think that it is possible but there are so many, you know, different surrounding factors here that we haven't taken into account. Um, I'm sure they, I'm sure, you know, the NHL has, I'm sure the government has, but we need to really be careful with, because again, we're playing with life and death here. And if they're, if, if resuming 
you know, the the regular season and the playoffs, if handing out the Stanley Cup means that, you know, someone's father or grandfather or significant other um, is at is put at a significantly higher risk of of dying. It's not worth it. No, no sport. I'm not dying for the Leafs and I'm not letting my dad or my grandpa die for the Leafs. So we need to be we need to be absolutely sure that this is safe and feasible and will be responsible from a social standpoint before we can think about bringing everything back. So ultimately, we're going to have to wait on a decision from uh, the NHL. Uh, that decision, whether it's going to be Toronto, is is very far down the line. But this is a important and perhaps telling week, I think, for the NHL coming up here. Uh, it last uh, delayed its or extended its quarantine period to April thirtieth. April thirtieth is will be will be here before the end of the week. Uh, so they're going to have to make a decision or or you know on what the players might do or just kick down the kick the can down the road they're going to kick it two down weeks i'm not completely convinced that they're going to kick it down the road what makes uh, you say that because at some point here we have to have the process of getting players back to uh their nhl host cities so if it doesn't happen this week that, that i mean it doesn't necessarily have to happen this week it's gonna ha- they're they are going to be where they are until april 30th but you need two weeks to get everyone home and through a quarantine process after that. Like if you travel, you have to be in a certain area for two weeks, right? That's how mm-hmm. every, that's how it's been with everyone. So yeah. that brings us to the middle of May. Then you need two or three weeks, they say, to have training camp. So that brings you until the first week of June. Mm-hmm. If you're really going to get going here, you got to uh, start now. You're going to have to start bringing players home soon. So what they do with this next one is interesting. Do they push it back by just a week? Do they push it back by the full two weeks and you still have no idea that there are any plans to get these players back? I think this is a very telling next few days what the, NA- what the NHL is going to do. I suspect they will del- what they will extend it, but how much they extend it uh, might be revealing of what their plan is here moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. This is we're really going to see whether or not this is, you know, something that's realistic or if, you know, like Gary Bettman said, he's fine starting the season and he went from first saying there's going to be a regular season, like a, a normal season next year, which means the season was going to start in October. And then he's gone now to saying, you know, he'd be fine starting in November. We're going to like this week will determine whether or not he's then going to even concede more and say, all right, well maybe a Christmas day start will be fine. Or maybe a January. Like it's, we're, we're really going to, cause this has impact on free agency, the draft, the salary cap, revenue, the start of next season, the playoffs, everything. And so the next few days are going to be pretty momentous. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Uh, Darren Drager reported Thursday that he believes May 15th would be the earliest that they start training. Uh, that means if you if you dial it back, that means May 2nd or May 1st would be, you know, when they start these quarantine periods. That means you're trying to get them back by that point. So the process is going to have to start soon. If you're going to get European players uh, to come back, you're going to get players from all across North America going back to their host cities. Uh, it, it is definitely a big week, but we will not talk about... Uh, anything more that you know has to do with the NHL restarting here because we have a theme to the show and we've talked pretty much at length about one subject and 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 a lot of you know sort of speculation so we'll get back uh to the news at some point but we're going to devote the rest of the pod to Mike Babcock uh we kind of took different approaches to preparing for this you really you know you hammered out the details you worked tirelessly at a timeline well I kind of just came up with themes or points that might you know provide explanation for the certain details that 
uh, you're going to talk about. So I'm going to I'm going to set uh, set it up for you, tee it up for you, because uh, you worked hard on a timeline, and I'll let you sort of navigate us, or at least the beginning stages here, uh, as we go through Mike Babcock's four and a half year tenure with the Toronto Maple Leafs. The question is, did I do too much work for this? Was it worth it? Because I spent about a solid three to four hours putting an entire timeline of Mike Babcock's now defunct tenure together. Um, it's it's going to be interesting. So, yeah, I thought we just, you know, there's, like you said, we've never really been able to both go at the Mike Babcock era together. We started the podcast well after he was fired. Um, and during and, and the only time we really get to bring it up is when we're talking about the sort of like uh, reverberations or tremors that his impact has left in the lineup um, in, in the context of recent games. So this this is one of the most perplexing eras in franchise history i think the mike babcock um the like the mike babcock tenure the from 2015 to 2019 because it's like it came in with such you know high expectations came in with such you know fanfare i mean i i was in uh, i was still in high school when this happened and i remember you know tweeting out you know the babschiller memes he chose us he gave us the rose uh, the there was there was all this crazy stuff that was going on and the way that it ended was just with so much venom, with vitriol. I mean, no one had a bad thing to say about Mike Babcock when he came in, despite the fact that Detroit, all Detroit fans were like, uh, watch out. And we're all like, no, it's great. It's the savior because we had Randy Carlisle before and, and, and uh, Peter Horacek and guys like that. And then by the time his tenure was over, there were like Babcock couldn't, couldn't even show his face in Toronto because every fan, even, you know, even the, the, the you know, let's bring back Wendell and Dougie fans, your uncle, um, we're we're turning on him so this is it's pretty crazy so i thought we just go through it kind of like a beat by beat talk about it you were there uh, you know behind the scenes in the trenches uh, as ryan rashog would say for most of it so i want to get your opinions on it too so um again would you like would you would you want me to bring it through or you are you are the host uh you're the great host here so would you want to want to do that or you want me to go through each one or what i can sort of tee you up to at least start here uh i will i will say that uh I, this is the first full year that I was with the Leafs. I, I did hang around for the previous two playoffs. So mm-hmm. uh, as much as I sort of, you know, I, I think I'll be able to bring some perspective there. Uh, I'll be in the dark a little bit on some things, but I think but you it, doesn't, to it doesn't take long to understand Mike Babcock. So I think bo- you don't even have to be there to understand Mike Babcock. So I think uh, as much as you said, it's sort of confusing. I kind of think we knew exactly what happened. And I think... We'll probably, I think we'll arrive at that point by the end of this. I mean, it's not confusing in the sense of like, what happened? How did it go wrong? Confusing in the sense of like, it, maybe not confusing, but just, well, also confusing in the sense that we look at the records on paper. Like this is one of the most successful 10 years in Leafs history. This, at least from a, from a regular season standpoint, I mean, he, he, Mike Babcock coached four years and he has the fifth most wins of any coach in franchise history. Um, he had a 173, 133 and 45 record, which is fantastic. Um, and the, and, uh, like he, he, it, it, you know, the, the Leafs consistently finished as playoff contenders in the playoffs, all that kind of stuff every, uh, every year, but the tank year and even the tank year, as we'll get into, he was able to sort of bridge that gap between tanking for the first overall pick and also making sure that the entire franchise didn't rot because of it. Um, so it, it's, it's just, it, it's confusing in the sense that on paper, it seemed like it was, you know, successful. I'm sure a lot of franchises would take that kind of success. And then the way that it ended was just it was confusing the sense of like it had to end even before it eventually did yeah uh uh, yeah i definitely agree with you uh but we'll go back to the beginning uh summer of 2015 so the leafs are coming off you know 
the most like a horrific horrific season i would say the worst year like that like because there were there were the 18 wheelers and stuff this was like hope went that's the season where hope went to die it, it was an absolute embarrassment mm-hmm. uh and it, it it was sort of required it, it it probably didn't you know give you the feeling that hey this the greatest coach of all time is going to jump at the opportunity to be here um but brendan shanahan was there there seemed to be a plan they knew what they were doing they were going to get a really good coach at some point but i don't think there was any promise it was going to be mike babcock it didn't even seem like it was going to be babcock until all of a sudden it was i mean i remember uh Bob McKenzie reported that he strongly believed that it wasn't going to happen. And, this, you know, Bob McKenzie's the best in the game. Uh, and it, this caught him by surprise. So it was certainly a surprise. It certainly surprised uh, Buffalo Sabres fans and media. But summer of 2015, uh, you know, the plane was tracked. He failed to come into agreement with the Detroit Red Wings. I think that was, you know, I think if you read between the lines, that might have been a mutual uh, mm-hmm. agreement it on was. the two sides. Uh, I think his time ran out there and I think they wanted to move forward. And he, of course, didn't want, like the direction. I don't think the Red Wings are going. He wanted to coach a winner, even if it wasn't necessarily right away. Uh, but there was two different trajectories, right? You believed, I guess he believed that the Maple Leafs were going to be on the way up eventually, while the Red Wings were kind of heading toward maybe a slow decay. Uh, but he came in with a caution. Maybe the most famous quote of his entire ten- tenure was, there's pain coming. Uh, mm-hmm. He was right. That first year was was painful, uh, but it was only temporary. It was uh, that I think that his there will be pain moment was the moment where because, you know, the, he was he was the most sought after um, coaching candidate, I think, in, in, you know, in my lifetime, like in, in terms of a free agent coaching candidate, I have never seen a and this is probably due to social media, but I've, I never saw, you know, 18 year old me at the time, never saw a, a an influx of interest and the bidding war and, you know, everything, everyone going after this one coach and everyone seeing him as the answer. And then him to come in and say there will be pain. For so long, the Leafs had tried to be winners when they clearly weren't. When ever they were, for so long, the Leafs management specifically were the only believers in the fact that they had, you know, they were the only people who believed they had a contending roster. And then Mike Babcock comes in, and he could have gone in. We're going to start winning right away. Screw rebuilds. I'm here. You know, I'm I'm the big man on campus. Let's do this. And instead, he said there are going to be pain. I'm I've bought in. I'm part of the uh, you know I'm part of the solution. I don't have my head in the sand. I'm self aware. I know there's going to be pain. I know we're going to, but I promise you, it will it will bear fruit eventually. And I think a lot of fans, after being sort of lied to and and bull- BS, quite frankly, like bullshitting completely, like the the management management thought and coaches and the coaching staff thought the fans were stupid. And Mike Babcock treated them like at least at the start. And we'll get into his whole PR thing. He treated the, he treated them like you know like like not equals but like you know being actual thinking citizens and that was that sort of there will be pain quote was the first step in being like okay this is going to be different yeah I think I think he did that also he he tried to insulate himself all the time he tried to protect himself I think this was the oh, of first, course first thing that he did to protect himself because uh if we go to one of like I wrote down points or you know like little things that I believe were strong themes from his tenure and I think he wanted nothing more than to play a long game mm-hmm. he wanted to he knew he had eight years uh, and that he would try to gradually move through that because he knew there would be pressure so so starting at the very bottom get, bought him some time now 
they seem to rush through the process a little bit more than maybe his he ever wanted to do. But he was on board to get John Tavares, so he wanted to get he wanted to uh, to accelerate things as well. Uh, but a main a major theme for me is that he wanted to play the long game, calling ugly games beautiful, fun games dumb. He wanted nothing more than to convert this young group uh, of young players. Uh, and 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 build them into like upstanding hockey men you into know? a team and it was going to take time uh and it was even worth making mistakes like the the Patrick Marlowe the third season he admitted fully that they just did that because they really wanted Patrick Marlowe that was the only way to get him so he wanted he wanted to build this thing slowly that was his first sort of uh, putting everyone on notice that that was going to happen. Uh, and I think there was different opinions and obviously we're going to get into that, but the timeline changed for him. And when the timeline changed, that's when he really seemed to get in trouble because he was brought out of his plan, which is his initial plan was to do this very slowly. And all of a sudden it wasn't, you know, it, it got accelerated way, be- way beyond that point, And maybe to a point that was, you know, it was sort of the beginning of the end for him. If any coach, I don't care where you are on the rebuild track. If any coach says no, we don't, we shouldn't go get John Tavares, then he should be fired on the spot out of that boardroom like that. Let's not give him a round of applause for being on board to get you know the biggest free agent in you know in my lifetime at least. Um, there, this is kind of the there was a one of the themes for me with Babcock. I didn't even write down here, but one of the themes was hypocrisy. Because there was the, um, you know, and, and again, we're going to get into it. Um, the accountability was like the biggest, you know, you got to be accountable, be a good pro, be accountable for your actions was the biggest pillar of his entire sort of like mantra. And then, you know, the the one time or not one time, every time he went, people, tr- he, he deserved blame. And every time he was given the opportunity to accept blame, he skirted it. He didn't take it. And so that was wild. And then also with the whole like you wanted to build it slowly. And then he said, oh, we wanted Patrick Marlowe so badly, so we're going to essentially cap strap ourselves for the third year just to get him in the short term for two years. So that doesn't like the timelines just seem to fluctuate based on his mood. Um, but again, though, that's not his decision. Like he was a he part was, of that. He was very involved, though. D- definitely a part of the decision. But his his job is just simply to coach the team. He wanted that player. Definitely. But that's what he wanted. He wanted to surround these young guys with people he believed could build them into upstanding hockey men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that was a main point for him. He didn't want, he really wanted to change, not change these guys, but to grow them. And, mm-hmm. you know, he got into trouble with his methods for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it, it seemed to, the way he wanted to approach it, well, that was a good move, Patrick Marlowe, for, you know, if you, if you talk to Austin Matthews, he'll say that's a good move. But his other methods definitely rubbed these players the wrong way. Uh, so, while he, you know, he that that was he was definitely a proponent of that. That was an important thing for him, but he didn't put it all together. He didn't put the whole package together. And again, we'll get to that. What am I? I think I think what really endeared him to the Leafs as well is the is the fact that him coming here really pissed off the Buffalo Sabers. That was, yeah. I mean, at least you know, as a as as a fan, you know, as an eighteen year old fan, that really did too because. The Sabres essentially thought that they, like doing some digging into this and, and just remembering this, the Sabres thought that they had Mike Babcock. They they had a, they had a, a, a media availability or a press conference scheduled for the next Monday morning. I think he signed on a Friday. He had scheduled for the next Monday morning to announce Babcock. Mike Babcock is the new head coach of the Buffalo Sabres. And based on what um, I believe it was Sean Stepner of, I don't, I'm not sure where he, where he writes for now, but he reported the Sabres had offered Babcock pretty much the exact same contract the Leafs did in principle. And then it, that, it looked that way. Like you said, Bob McKenzie said, it's highly unlikely the Leafs, you know, are, are, are front runners here, or at least in the mix. And then 
we got to give a shout out to him, Jeff Vayette, with the greatest uh, investigative journalism of our time, tweets out that he he was tr- he was tracking Air Canada's private jet schedule and the Leafs private jet schedule or the Leafs private jet had flown to the airport in Detroit, stopped for four minutes, and then flown back to Toronto. And when he tweeted that out. I don't know who's I like how you even come into your brain to think about let's track airplane schedules. But he did. And he essentially broke the signing before anyone else, because once he tweeted that out, everyone knew, OK, Babcock's here. And I, I, I did a little deep dive. There's two great um, way there. There are two great. Uh, let me pull it up here. Um, retrospects on, on, on my Babcock year, because it, it really pissed off the Buffalo Sabres. And so. Oh, geez, I got to get Mike Harrington's quote up here. But, um, oh, man, this is great podcasting, what I'm doing right now. <laughs> um, okay, anyway, uh, let me just do the one that I have written down here. So, <laughs> so Sean Stepner, uh, Tim Graham, sorry, uh, reported that the Sabres were livid for the way that Babcock handled the past few days. The Sabres were so confident he was coming that they had scheduled a, a Monday morning press conference. And then Mike Harrington went on to go say, whoa, like, whoa is the Sabres? We don't need a coach that chooses money over success that chooses um you know uh, that chooses a, a a depleted core over a contending core at the time they had you know they had they were about to get jack eichel and they had, he cited nikita zadarov in the uh, in the core and rasmus Stalin and everything and it really went to show that at the time as well todd mcclellan was the highest paid coach in the nhl he made three million dollars for the oilers and mike babcock would make 6.25 million for the next eight years um, pissing off the Buffalo Sabres really adhered him to, to Lee's fans. And I couldn't find video of it, but uh, there is the legendary Mike Harrington press conference where he went to Mike Babcock's opening press conference with the Leafs and essentially asked him why he hates puppies. Yeah, I mean, you're right. For those reasons, the initial press conference couldn't have gone better from a, you know, an endearing uh, introduction with Toronto fans. Obviously, there was that quote, there was the the honesty, uh, but there was this like larger than life personality saying that, right? But it was also the Buffalo thing. I mean, he sort of, I don't know if he, st- I, I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly how it went. But the fact that there was this contentious little moment with 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 Buffalo, he just threw him into the to the rivalry, to the fan base, uh, and all of a sudden it was this there was a larger than life personality that was now representing the Maple Leafs. I mean, we've seen that before with Brian Burke. Obviously, there was a lot of fanfare, and we're gonna go into the legacy a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I I wrote down hope as like as a, a a question mark for his legacy because didn't Brian Burke do that? And yep. then you know what happened, like, and Mike Babcock did that, but we know what happened. I think Austin Matthews probably represents hope a little bit better. Uh, but just going back to the legacy with the initial introduction, I think it's a big part of his legacy is that he raised the bar from an earning perspective for coaches. You mentioned it. Uh, he was earning double over the next eight seasons. Well, it didn't turn out that way because coaches eventually got, you know, the bell curve because of him. Uh, but his salary at the time was double the highest earning coach. He signed for $50 million U.S. money. Uh, that was a, we're talking life-changing money for his family for generations. This was a huge, huge moment for the league because it changed the way uh, coaches could make a living in this league. And it, it just changed the dynamics. If you wanted to go get a big coach, you were going to have to pay a lot of money. And we saw, you know, a guy like Joel Quenville take his time. And then he eventually got you know, broke the bank with the Florida Panthers. It was a, it was a huge, huge part of his legacy uh, in Toronto, which says something about, you know, how he actually fared mm-hmm. uh, in the coaching position. Yeah. You never want to have your paycheck as like the pretty much the biggest, uh, most well-known sort of subtitle or, or sub quote of, of your tenure. Um, 
it was it was hilarious because Mike Babcock in the 2015-16 tank year, it was he was essentially like a college football or college basketball coach. He was the attraction, and he was making far more money than anyone on the roster. I mean, the next highest I put in here, it's hilarious. The next highest, uh, next closest player to make the exact same the same amount of money as Mike Babcock was Nathan Horton, who made mm-hmm. five point three million, and he was on long term reserve, never played a game. Um, and uh, I guess on the actual roster, it was it was JVR. I think it was five point two seven or something. Five point two seven four. Sorry, four point two seven five. But he was he was the draw. Like people were going to games to watch Mike Babcock to see what he was like behind the bench, um, to see what he was going to do, what he was going to bring. He was like the you know Nick Saban or or uh, Bobby Knight or you know Coach K of of the NHL at that point because he had a team of scrappy misfits, you know, a bunch of young guys, a bunch of you know veterans who would eventually never play again. Um, and he and people wanted to see what kind of magic he could spin out of them. And although they finished thirtieth, that 2015-16 tank year was I was I'm going to go on record as the most um, masterful tank job I've seen in the NHL because and I was in first year university when this happened, and so I remember I was watching all the games and it was it was a slog, but I remember watching all the games and it was they were close. They never got destroyed until the end of the year when Garrett Sparks was put in net. Which to the fact that Mike Babcock was able to spin together, you know, sixty nine points um, with Garrett Sparks in net for down the stretch was pretty good. And injured Garrett Sparks, mind you, um, the roster was designed to lose, and he somehow managed to coax it out of it. And bef- we didn't know all the sort of behind the scenes stuff that we do now, but it did seem like he really changed the culture. Like he, at the time, the Leafs were an arrogant franchise. They thought they were better than everyone. They thought they could fi- they could fix all their problems by spending it. They thought that they knew better than um th- than the analytics community. They thought they knew better than than pretty much everyone. And they talked, like I said, they talked down to their fans. This is coming off Randy Carlisle confidently walking up to a podium and saying he's got a theory about concussions because helmets cause them by overheating the brain. So this was it. The fact that he came in, he instilled you know the culture of be a good pro every single day, do your job. Um, and it seemed to work. I mean, like, there's a reason why the guys like, you know, the, the Lupels and even as much as I love him and literally like I, I wore his number in minor hockey and continued to on Twitter for today, Phil Kessel, he was gone. And some people were excited to see what Mike Babcock could do with Phil Kessel, but immediately he was he was jettisoned. Um, there there really was a sense of this team, even though they even though they suck, to be frankly, they do like they had Colin Greening on the top power, uh, power play unit down the stretch. It was it was a bad team. But they came in and they worked hard every single night. And although they lost, they were still able to take positives out of it. And this was the one time in his tenure where I think Mike Babcock was able to earnestly stand in front of the the media and say, this loss we just had was beautiful. Yeah, I think you make a great point with the college coach. Uh, I think that's a, a really good analogy to, to draw on because Thank you. Uh, th- it was it was exactly true. And I don't want to say that he was worth the price of admission because there was still he wasn't. Know, plenty of losing that season. Uh, but there were encouraging signs. I remember comparing them to the Oilers. I mean, if you watch this podcast on YouTube, uh, if you're listening, you won't be able to see it, but I do have an Oilers jersey behind me. Yep. Uh, so I, I've been paying attention to the Oilers for a long time. I was a fan as a, as a, as a kid. Uh, and watching sort of Todd McClellan really struggle with just a basic structure in Connor McDavid's first season was truly exasperating because you had, I was watching Mike Babcock, you know, at the, in the 7 p.m. time slot, with a really, really bad roster, just really simplified the game and do things in a way that just made sense. 
uh, at least with the personnel that he had. There was a lot of very many, many good players out there, but they could make a simple first pass and they could dump the puck out of the zone and they can change, you know, uh, zones and, and, and just move the puck a little bit more. Uh, and it seemed like his influence was obvious. And whenever he got good players, it was going to, it was just going to soar because he could make it happen with what was just a band of misfits basically. And the end, you know, the remnants of what was going to be a scorched earth roster. So, uh, I think that first season was really, really encouraging. I think it was one of his best seasons behind the bench. I don't think it was his best. I think that was probably his second season. Um, but I think he proved or at least made people believe that he was worth the money and that he was going to be the guy that really changed things because the Leafs had brought in guys that were supposed to change things. Uh, and I think everyone was on board with the fact that Mike Babcock was indeed going to do it. And it was also the fact that, you know, shortly after they brought Babcock in, the Leafs also brought Lou Lamorello in. And that was a big change to the culture, too. And Lou Lamorello was essentially, uh, I think he set the tone in terms of, of, of culture and Babcock kind of enforced it. And although the rules got really sort of, uh, I guess, grating after a while, the, you know, no no beards, haircuts got to be high and tight, you know, set your watch to them, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was a detox. This was a rotten franchise. Like, this was a franchise where people came, like, Oli, the Oli, Oli Jokinen's tenure with the Leafs, which came, the you know, was 11 games or 7 games or something the season before. What spoke volumes? Ole Jokinen came in. The guy's been around forever. He was a decent player on the back end of his career. He walked in. He said, "I, I can see a hundred percent why this team sucks. They they don't care. They they all, you know, they're happy to to cash their paychecks and and be fine." And Babcock came in and said, "We're not going to stand for this." And uh and and it at the time it seemed genuine. At the time it worked. He he was a consummate coach. Where if you want to scorch, if you want to have a guy who's you know unfeeling, you know robotic kind of come in and and do scorched earth and and you know strip a team to the bone when it needs to the most, he's fantastic at doing that. But I think that once, like you said, once the expectations rose and once it was all right, it's not scorched earth time anymore. It's time to start winning. He was he was kind of reluctant to change and reluctant to to adjust with that, and that was ultimately his downfall. But this 2015-16 tank year was immensely successful for him because he was able to to uh, usher through. He was able to s- succeed in failure. He was able to to get the team. 30th in the league essentially exact the plan the organization had and also not have it ruin the franchise like that tank year did with buffalo or like every other tank year does with with the oilers he's able to to make every game matter to a roster of players who they knew full well we're probably not going to be not just on this team but in the league next year and eventually it worked well, the Lamorella thing's huge. I mean, uh, Mike Babcock, I don't know if it was in the works. I don't know if it was in the plans. Uh, but when they hired Lamorello, it was as though Mike Babcock had an extension of himself to some degree in the general manager seat. I mean, this mm. was it. This isn't, you know, I wouldn't say match made in heaven, but from for what they want to do, like-mindedness, two guys who believe and see the game the same way, Babcock had that guy for him. And I think that's a, that's... That was it's an important detail because he Mike Babcock was a coach that was just perpetually dissatisfied with the general manager who whoever was putting together his team even Lou I'm sure he had issues with uh, but when we got to Dubis like there was true incompatibility but Babcock's nature was just to constantly push and pull with the person putting together the roster uh, he just doesn't see the game 
uh, he's always going to see the game his way. So having someone who who saw it pretty close was the reason I believe that they were able to do have so much success early because they were both doing they're both on the same page. They were doing what they needed to do to strip down the roster. There was no fight over Phil Kessel because they probably looked at Phil Kessel the same way, right? Exactly. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, like that's that's a big key to those early success years. Actually, although Kessel was traded before Lou came in. Dubas said that his first trade, or his, or Dubas recently said in a Zoom call uh, that I think his second trade was putting together the Phil Kessel deal. So I think that was, but to your point, Lou coming in essentially was Mike Babcock's seat at the GM's table. He definitely, he definitely, like, if they had just gone with Dubas right off the bat, there's no way that Mike Babcock would have had the amount of influence over the personnel decisions that he did. Lou was able, Lou was, Lou listened to Babcock. He was, he was the enabler of that. And that was for good and for and for worse. Like there are some te- there are some players. Mike Babcock said, "I can't play these guys," and they eventually turned out to not be NHLers. Frank Corrado, Peter Holland, Malam McCulloch, Brooks Like, Eric Fair, guys like that. But at the end of the day, there was also players who Mike Babcock said, "I can't play with these guys. Get rid of them," or "I can't play these guys. Get rid of them." And Lou said no. That eventually proved to be you know very good. And so we'll and we'll get into those as well. Um, but it, what really turned it? And now we to switch into the 2016-17 season, what really sort of ratcheted everything up was the fact that expectations just went through the roof. The team got, they won the draft lottery eventually thanks to the tank and they selected Austin Matthews. And in the summer, again, this is Babcock, uh, uh, you know, having influence over the general manager's position. They trade the least traded the 30th overall pick and a 2017 second rounder for Frederick Anderson from Anaheim. And uh, oh, your dog, dog getting a cameo on the pod. Sweet. Wasn't, wasn't sure you're going to be able to hear that. Oh, bring Go, bring her in. Come keep, on. Keep going. I'm going to mute. Ask her about Babcock. Um, but also, uh, he also said, "I, I want to get Frederick Anderson because I need to get someone who I can win with." He told Lou to get him someone he can win with, and eventually got Anderson, and that's worked out splendidly. But that that was the first sign of Babcock really having influence over the player acquiring acquisition aspects of this team yeah i mean uh, again i think uh it's hard it's hard to, with the, all the you know the personnel moves because yeah he said he wanted it but i mean duh obviously you'd want someone to win with they needed to get a goaltender and lou lamorell that was his best move with the maple leafs was going out and getting frederick anderson uh and it's something i guess he didn't really quibble with i mean just to go back on my earlier point of him always constantly tugging like him with him with Ken Holland, they they were just at odds. You'd you'd say mm-hmm. at the end of his tenure all the time because he just was not giving him enough. What Mike Babcock believed wasn't enough, and th- it was with every acquisition he would seem to do that near the end of his tenure with the Leafs. I mean, he mildly protested the Jake Muzzin trade after it happened. I wouldn't even say a mildly protest. He no, pretty he, pro- he protested it openly, which is which is unbelievable because he's been such a important player, and that goes back to his refusal he's to their adapt. Best defenseman, and, and we're gonna get to his refusal to adapt as being like you know like a main point of why it didn't work out but he just wanted his thing it his way all the time uh and it was easy at the start because it didn't matter as much you know what i mean like it, yeah it, it, he you say he executed the tank perfectly i mean the only reason that it was executed perfectly is because austin matthews came at the end of it right but like even they, if did they win yeah. the lottery as the, as the best odds they had yeah they had the best odds so and they- won the lottery 
but that it, was a perfectly executed tank. They could have let it. They could have let the organization. And I can't believe I'm dumping praise on Mike Babcock here because I definitely thought I'd be the most critical one of, of the bunch, and I'm sure I will be as we keep going forward here. But he uh, he was able like he he look what ha- look what it did to the Sabers to try and tank from for um, McDavid. It ruined them. It, they, we still have that rot in the organization with them today. And Mike Babcock to his credit, was able to lose games in a dignified way where you could keep your dignity and still execute the organizational plan. That I don't think that's happened. I, don't, I haven't seen that happen in, in, in recent years. I, ju- I think he's fortunate for a number of reasons. I think he was fortunate because... Oh, it's because all luck. A lottery's ha- luck. No, but it, ha- it the tank was so good because it happened after... McDavid, right? So all these players, all these teams planned to be bad the year before. Well, we're not going to do that again. You have to at least show face. They got, you know, Jack Eichel is all of a sudden, uh, you know, a Buffalo Sabre. McDavid's obviously on the Oilers. Things changed for those teams. So they were just bad. They just had a really bad team. They had the worst team in the league from a roster standpoint. Mike Babcock coached the hell out of that team. They still came last and they were lucky enough to win the lottery. So it's easy to say that tank is, you know, it, it worked out perfectly. It did work out perfectly. Uh, but this could have went an entirely different way if Austin Matthews wasn't the prize at the end of that season for sure. It also is to your point with the with the luck that they were able to because of that tank season. They were they were lucky that Nazem Kadri shot. I think it was three percent that whole season was able to lock them him down to a incredible contract uh, long term, and also that Morgan Riley was like he, he was a top pairing defenseman on the last place team in the NHL so we, they were able to lock him like those two deals don't happen if the Leafs are a successful team that year and they were lucky with the fact that Nazem Kadri just inexplicably God came down and was like you will not score this season and with Morgan Riley he was completely swamped with all that but you know what you need like anything that happens in the NHL it ha- there has luck to it any Stanley Cup winner any uh, any lottery you know the fact that the that Pittsburgh uh, that Sidney Crosby's a Pittsburgh Penguin is due to you know like some people think it's a it's it's a it was a fix or whatever but that is due to the most create the craziest luck in the world Patrick Kane falling I mean, it, to it's crazy it, Crosby's the reason why the Pittsburgh Penguins still exist you know yes like it, it, it's it's remarkable how well, they're not the it, Hamilton it, Penguins exactly but it, it was perfect it was it was all coming together in that sense like that's what gave fans so much belief I think because all these everything was falling into place beautifully to the point where they got Austin Matthews and you're right with those with Morgan Riley and Nazem Kadri signing those deals like everything was working out perfectly and it accelerated the process I mean they got Matthews Babcock had a true superstar in the making to work with it was coming together fast and all of a sudden the Leafs went from 69 points to 95 points with a postseason appearance just with a bunch of kids in the lineup uh second season for Babcock Matthews first uh and I believe that was Babcock's best coaching season because these were just a bunch of hands green prospects Marley's guys that are just coming to the league with you know Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews uh it just that was so much fun to watch the Leafs that year and and I think Babcock did a tremendous job in that season that was the most fun season of hockey I've ever watched it was that was incredible because I was too young to really appreciate like the last time the Leafs have won a playoff series I was eight years old so I was too young to appreciate on a granular level you know that kind of success and also this what this team in total had played 10 rookies that year there was a core of seven who played like 50 plus games were regulars but that but it was insane and he was able to to coax that out of them and it's all started at the world cup the world cup in toronto the hokey tournament but babcock was the coach of team canada the fact that it happened in toronto was huge and 
he went up in front of the podium and he said, you know, this is this is a call. This was a sort of like a, a testament of what's to come. And, uh, you know, I've got seven more years here in Toronto and then I'm going to stay for another two more after that because the team's going to be that good. Mm-hmm. Now, that looks hilarious in hindsight, just like most everyone does, because he didn't even make it halfway through, really. But at the time, you're a, you're a Leafs fan who has watched Randy Carlisle play for Colton Lauren, Fraser McLaren on his fourth line forever. You've gone through game, you know, game seven in 2013. You've gone through the horror check years. You've gone through the, the pajama jersey Paul Maurice years. And then you have a coach come in here and say, and just after winning the World Cup in your hometown with the first overall pick ready to rock. And after tr- just watching that first overall pick, you know, torch. Not, I wouldn't say dominate, but just light up the Air Canada Center at the time. Like that was that was Austin Matthews' introduction to the NHL was that tournament alongside all those great, you know, North Team North American players. Like there, the, the belief and the hope was at an all-time high at that point. And Mike Babcock delivering that quote, I mean, it just got... It, it it brought a sense of anticipation unlike like, unlike anything we'd seen before really to that point absolutely and this was uh, this also allowed us to gloss over a lot of things i mean this is a good like the team was was a good team they finished 14th in the nhl but i mean they finished 5th in the nhl in goals for they had the second best power play and remarkably with guys like roman polak and matt Hunwick on the roster they had the they had the 10th best pk in the nhl at 82.47 yeah that was that was amazing but the first cracks, I think, this is the season where the first cracks started to show in in the way Babcock managed people. And we're talking about, and, and these are such sort of like at this point irrelevant players, but this sort of set the, it's it set the, the, the I don't know, set the table for how he would, how he would kind of botch personnel and player management decisions with more important players moving forward. Because this was the season that Peter Holland, Frank Corrado, Milan McCulloch, it was the next season that Eric Fair got, got busted. So ignore that. But Brooks Like and Jonas Enroth were all essentially jettisoned from the team. And Peter Holland was, uh, you know, Peter, Peter Holland was pretty vocal about it. Some were vocal about it. And we're getting into what Frank Corrado said about him. Milan McCulloch scored. In I think the second game of of the season, he looked like he'd be a decent, you know, sort of veteran guy. And Babcock, after four games, said no. Uh, Brooks like thought he was going to be the fourth line center on the team, and Babcock said no, and then he pouted his way out of town, and that's fine. And Jonas Enroth was brought in, and Babcock took it took three starts for Babcock to be like, I hate this man, get him off my team. Um, and so because these these players weren't assen- weren't really essential to the team to the success the success of the team, and they eventually went on to not have lengthy NHL careers. Uh, Corrado's in the AHL right now. I think Peter Holland is either in the KHL or in Switzerland or something. Um, it's it's you know it, it it's not a big deal, but as, like I, Frank Corrado spoke to the Athletic, and he's it, his his remarks about it were were, were incredible because he essentially said he's he's getting really frustrated being in the press box all the time. Um, he had L- Lamorello's support, but at the end of the day, the coach is the one who makes the lineup. And if the coach doesn't like you. Then you're not going to play, and that's where I'm at right now. If you, if you, um, and then Babcock went on to say, if you think liking me, blah blah blah, whatever. But Frank Corrado essentially said that he, I'm not playing because Mike Babcock doesn't like me, and that's like right there. That kind of was set the tone of how he handled these these players moving forward. And what happened to Frank Corrado was a lot of pe- player, uh, people say it's fine because he was Frank Corrado, but it eventually happened to Justin Hall, and as we'll get to, that was really detrimental to the success of the team. Yeah, and for that reason, I think, you know, he might have made some mistakes there. But what it ultimately was, you know, illustrative of was that Mike Babcock was on a pretty significant 
power trip at this point, right? Oh, if you if I mean, you have eight so years he, to finish an assignment, you're gonna you're not gonna finish it in the first two. You're gonna take all that time, and you feel like you're the king of the world. And if anyone steps to you, if well, Free Corrado steps to you, what are you, you you gonna let him? No, not even not even that though. I mean I I mean like he just okay he lots of fanfare after the worst season, one of the worst seasons you know in franchise history, coming thirtieth in the league. But you just got Austin Matthews, and you're on top of the world because you have something to work with now. You just won the World Cup with Canada. You just added to your already decorated resume. Uh, now you're going to start coaching this team. This is your team. Uh, he was taking ownership of it, and he was going to, frankly, make the decisions. Now, all the players you mentioned, and you mentioned it, they didn't really amount to anything. There could have been a mistake in there. Justin Hall proved to be a mistake, uh, the fact that he didn't play him. But the biggest thing from a management perspective or a methods and his own process, he being Mike Babcock, was the Mitch Marner incident. Yes. Uh, we didn't know about this, obviously, uh, until three, four years later. Uh, but at this point, uh, he apparently, as we know now, the story is that he had Mitch Marner write down a list of players that weren't working hard enough or were the, the, you know, the players that were coming in on the low spectrum in terms of the effort that they put in. Uh, and this really, this didn't come to light for a long time. Uh, but this gives you a glimpse into probably his processes and the old school methods that he shouldn't be putting putting out there and maybe was sort of the beginning of the end for uh, for him in terms of the way he managed his relationships with the young players that were coming up. Yeah, his relationships were poor with Peter Holland and Frank Corrado and so on and so forth. He didn't believe in them as hockey players. But the most damage he did at this this time in his career was not nurture the relationships with the players that were going to matter uh, as best he could. Yeah, and and you know what? At the time, you can think, okay, you know, you're not supposed to cater to rookies. They're rookies. It's a you know NHL kind of culture. Let them earn their stripes. But that was but what he did to Mitch Marner, you know, it, it's it's inexcusable. If someone if a boss did that in any other workplace, that would be grounds for termination you'd be talking or at least you'd at least be having a very difficult conversation with HR and be able to betray the trust of a player like that. Um, I don't see what, I don't see what purpose it holds. I don't see how, what positive measures that could possibly have to establishing the fabric of a, of a cohesive unit of a team or the success of a team or, you know, or it also it also showed that Babcock fundamentally did not understand how to communicate and deal with young people because, you know, Zach, like the the young people that he was good dealing with, or at least he liked, were guys like Zach Hyman, who, you know, is the most wholesome man on the planet, wholesome boy on the planet, um, who has never had a bad thing to say about anyone and who anyone can get along with. Connor Brown, who's a little leprechaun of positivity. And who's like they're soldiers, but these like you know, it, for example, I'm 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 the same age as I think Mitch Marner. I'm definitely no, I'm the same age as William Nylander. And if someone did to me what Mike Babcock did to Mitch Marner, I can tell you that I would never have the same relationship, working relationship with that person again. It would it would not stoke out the best of me. In fact, it would probably build a lot of resentment that would boil over into into um, negatively impacting both his performance and my performance. And we didn't know about this. We didn't know when it happened. It was kept very much under wraps. A lot of people did know, but they didn't speak up about it. And the fact that it happened after that, it came to light after his firing that, that pushed his, his dismissal into the pantheon of like us looking at it from a hockey perspective and him being like, Oh, this, this person had to leave the organization badly. Yeah. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I mean, it brings me back. It brings me to one of my main points in terms of, you know, we were talking about you had the details and I had sort of these underlying themes. I just, one of the big things that kept coming up is that he made horrible non-hockey decisions and ones yes. that were probably worse than his actual coaching flaws, in my opinion. The list with Marner is the biggest one. The attack on Spezza and the scratch on opening night after Spezza had bought a huge chunk of tickets. It's 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 hard to compare these things with, you know, habitually rolling out a fourth line after a goal or refusing to play Justin Hall or Frankie Corrado. But the way he rubbed players, certain players the wrong way, I think Austin Matthews falls into that. And it seemed to happen happen for decades. Honestly, that might have been more de- detrimental than those like just those decisions at the margins that people didn't really like. You know, it, it just that just keeps coming up as we as we you know as as I look back on his careers, the fact that he just those and they were kept under wraps for so long. But as much as you know, we were so much. Uh, you know, debate and argument over what he was doing, but it was what he was doing behind closed doors. That was really the worst uh, processes that he had, in my opinion. Exactly. And it, and it shed a lot of, it, it did a lot of explaining as to, you know, what, like what was happening on the ice too. You know, you see players were visibly frustrated and you thought it was, you know, at their own play. And it was essentially because they had a, they were, they had a coach who they either knew didn't like them or, or was playing mind games. And it also went to show that again, like Mike Babcock, did these things because he thought that, you know, he was a, a a genius puppet master. And it was the whole power trip. And I think that a coach is supposed to be the man. He's supposed to come in and say, you know, uh, you know, I'm the boss here. You're going to listen to me. Like, look, like the last dance is going on right now. And Phil Jackson was that. He was, you know, he was a passive kind of guy, but he was an alpha dude in that locker room. You know, people listened to him. He got Michael Jordan to listen to him. But the fact that the reason why he's probably the most successful coach in basketball history is because he was the best at managing people, at managing egos, at catering to the needs of his stars while also making sure that it didn't detract from both the on-court, you know, uh, uh, on-court production and also the uh, the fabric of the actual team unit, which is important. He understood that. Mike Babcock was a very smart hockey coach. Um, I think he did a lot of things well, but his biggest like you said his biggest flaw was the fact that he just didn't have the ability to manage people in a way that was successful he thought it was successful and i think that was even i think that was the biggest flaw is that he you know he said he he even said himself you know mike babcock's biggest believer is mike babcock i'm a big believer in mike babcock and 
so when when he's making these these decisions that I don't have I don't see how they have any benefit whatsoever. Like how does that help the team if you're just gonna like you know be a dick to Jason Spezza and and a, you know a, a kid and Mitch Marner. Um, but he thought it was the right way to do it, and that explains a lot of his stubbornness. That explains a lot of how he kept going on the uh, with, with his on ice decisions, how he kept playing players and sticking to his favorites and and keeping the doghouse locked and all that. It, it was it it all came down to an ego, a, a, a misguided sense of belief, and an inability to look around him and and, and realize and be self aware. Really, I, I I think in the end, the reason why Mike Babcock was fired obviously was the fact that they were underperforming, but it came down to. The fact that he couldn't adapt from a philosophical standpoint, he couldn't adapt to Kyle Dubas's preferred playing style, but his coaching and motivational methods were also well in the past as well. Oh, we yeah. Learned, we learned that after the fact. I think we probably knew. I, I don't know if we knew how much until he was actually gone because, as, as you mentioned, that wasn't reported until uh, he had been fired. Uh, but it was clear that the, what he was doing behind closed doors wasn't certainly wasn't what Kyle Dubas and the Toronto Maple Leafs wanted, but it was it was well well in the past, uh, mm. and that's that's a reason why I believe he just didn't have strong relationships with the most important players uh, on the roster, and that he had strong relationships, or he at least he believed and and had you know and really appreciated uh, players like Zach Hyman, uh, and and it, and it also extended to Morgan Riley and Nazem Kadri, and I think the reason why he had such affinity for those guys is because he helped grow those two players. Mm-hmm. He was, he was the guy that helped Nazem Kadri become that shutdown center that he became for. Yeah, a I was just second. about to bring that up. Yeah. He's the reason why Morgan Riley had a Norris or one of the reasons why Morgan Riley became a Norris trophy candidate because he added that extra element to his team. That's the reason why I believe Morgan Riley is one of the few people he actually mentioned on the way out mm-hmm. because it was one guy that he could take pride in. He try, he helped build Morgan Riley into the player he is, and that's why he was probably so angry when Nazem Kadri was sent uh, sent packing. I mean, these were his guys. He had he believed so much in these players, and when that was taken away from him, that just added to the friction that you could tell that was starting to boil over between uh, himself and Kyle Dubas. He had his toys, but it, we have we do have to um, credit what Mike Babcock did with both those players. I mean, he, Nazem Kadri he. He changed Nazem Kadri's career. Like 100%. Nazem Kadri isn't the player that he is today right now without Mike Babcock as his coach because he turned him into a one-dimensional offensive center, you know, a guy who would try and dangle through four dudes and and only kind of live for scoring, and he turned them into one of the I would one of the best shutdown centers in the league. He the the McDavid game um was the biggest sort of a uh, reason or not reason but like was the biggest sort of telling sign of that he completely shut down Connor mcdavid and bullied him he bull he embarrassed Connor mcdavid in his hometown because nazim kadri just stuck to him all game and eventually scored the 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 ot winner and with riley too a lot of people forget like there was a lot of a lot riley was taking a lot of flack in that 16 17 season because he wasn't putting up huge numbers and his often and his his underlying stats were really bad that's because mike babcock was putting him through the ringer he was giving them you know the hardest um, even strength uh, ice time he's putting him next to a rookie and a uh, 25 year old rookie, but still in uh, Nikita Zaitsev and, and uh, essentially giving him almost zero power play time. And I think that although he's not a sterling defensive uh, defenseman right now, but being putting, getting through that and, and developing sort of like the ability to at least withstand a, a barrage from your opponent's top, like top competition that 
elevated Morgan Riley's career as well to being I think that elevated Morgan Riley's career from being, you know, another Tyson Berry to being Morgan Riley. Okay, we're jumping around a little bit uh, with All the right. first three seasons. No, that's it's Let's all go good. I just want to sort of reset a little bit, but yes. I think the reason why we're comfortable doing that is those first three seasons were very successful, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first year, the tank year, uh, the lease went from sixty nine points to ninety five points in that second year. That was the first year with Matthews' postseason appearance, competitive loss to the Washington Capitals in round one, uh, five overtimes, I believe, in that postseason series. That was uh, yeah. one of the one of the more you know encouraging. Uh, times in Leaf history, honestly, was, was that the most fun I've ever had watching Capitals. hockey. The next year was even better. The Leafs under Mike Babcock set a franchise record with 105 points the next season. I think that's when we saw, you know, Morgan Riley and Nazem Kadri really taking those steps. Uh, they did lose to the Boston Bruins in the first round of the playoffs, but it was a really, really good season, and Mike Babcock had his imprints all over that. Mm-hmm. The spoils didn't go to him after the season, though. Uh, they went first and foremost to Kyle Dubas. He was elevated to general manager. This pushed Lou Lamorello out, the man who Babcock seemed to, sh- to share the same world or at least hockey worldview with. Uh, he went to run another other team. And this is sort of, in my eyes, the beginning of the end uh, for Mike Babcock. Absolutely. It started, I mean, like, it, it really started with free agency because this was the summer where the Leafs signed Patrick Marlowe to a three-year, $18.75 million contract. No, no, and that was the year before. That was the year before. No, we're talking 17-18, right? Uh, well, Lamorello signed that contract. Yeah. Right. So we're in the 17-18 season right after 16-17. And in that summer, okay, Marlowe signed that deal. And then also... No, Marlowe was there against the Bruins. Yeah. The, the the first time they played the Bruins was in seventeen eighteen in the playoffs. Oh, we're gonna look at the timeline here. It, because sixteen seventeen was against the Caps, and then okay. se- seventeen eighteen was when they signed Marlowe, and also when they gave Nikita Zaitsev the seven year extension after one decent season. No, because John Tavares played once against the Bruins. Patrick Marlowe played played twice against the Bruins. Yes, so seventeen eighteen is Mark is Marlowe's first season against the Bruins and then 1819 was Marlowe's second season against the Bruins and then 1920 is the year we're living in right now okay so when did Lamorello go out the door after 1718 right before John Tavares signed it was right before John because remember he tried to post John Tavares as the GM of the of the uh Islanders and he was right. de- like negotiating against Dubas so, so we're talking about we were talking like yeah the beginning and I was talking about the end but but this is the beginning of the end when Patrick Marlowe signed when Nick it was it was when Nikita Saitsev signed that deal essentially that it was really the beginning of the end for Babcock because you could tell that his fingerprints were all over that and the Leafs gave a seven-year commitment to a guy who had one like decent season see I disagree I think the beginning of the end was when Lou went out the door well yeah that was and Lou went out the door right before they signed John Tavares but we all kind of knew that at least at least I did. I kind of knew that at the end of Lou Lamorello's contract, like they're not like it's going to be Dubis. And this was probably due to the fact that I was cover- this is my first year covering the Marlies and being embedded in that organization and being around the team, you know, on a near daily basis and seeing kind of how they were grooming Dubis to take over that role. But I, I-, I knew like I think that if I kind of could foresee that, then I think Mike Babcock also could foresee the fact that I think that his buddy Lou is not going to be uh, re-upped here. Certainly, and and maybe what he didn't see was the fact that it just wasn't going to work with Kyle Dubas and him. Yeah, I, I I know he probably. I mean, their relationship never seemed to be. You know, they never seemed to be really truly on the same page. Uh, but at least the the 
the the immediacy in which it just didn't seem to work uh, was maybe surprising to him as well. It actually wasn't a big issue right away because they did sign John Tavares together. Uh, that was Kyle Dubas's first huge move. Uh, we mentioned it already, but obviously Mike Babcock was all about that. Uh, but it was a massive and truly unique signing. I mean, we just mm-hmm. don't see that happen, happen much. And it was one that completely changed the dynamic. I mean, this team had to win now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while, you know, there was, you know, Babcock might have been a bit butthurt about the fact that Lou Lamorella wasn't in the organization anymore. He had not only one franchise center, but two franchise centers. And despite the failure in the in the first round of the previous two seasons, uh, this was all he wanted. He wanted the chance to win. He wanted the chance to coach truly great players mm-hmm. uh, and the expectations that had already been risen beyond what he was probably comfortable with uh, had accelerated to an even faster or even greater rate. Yeah, this was the theme for me of the 2017-18 season was expectations because it was it was a a completely it was a meteoric rise in expectations. This was supposed to, like these two years supposed to be building. It was a five year plan, and the first year was supposed to be building. And now the Leafs had signed Patrick Marlowe. They had made the playoffs the year before and taken the Presence Trophy winners kind of to the wall. Um, and now they're locking down pieces of their core. It's huge. And so this is where like this season, the cracks started to show before. This is where people started to turn. This is where people were like, what is Mike Babcock doing here? And so the Leafs, they were, they were still scoring goals. They scored fourth most in the NHL that season. They had the second best power play again. The PK took a dip one, like one spot into 11th, whatever. But the player management of Mike Babcock, both on the ice and off the ice, is where is this is where the seeds really started to show because the Leafs re-signed Polak, Roman Polak, in October af- after a horrific knee injury, if you recall, in the, against the, the Capitals. Polak's Polak's knee did like a reverse 90 degree angle and yet he's getting re-signed and this is despite the fact that both Andreas Borgen and Connor Carrick look pretty good you know on that third pair and yet he's coming in and, and putting in Polak who had who had struggled before that leg injury and now is coming off off that leg injury to replace him Ron Hainsey was also joining the joining the the fold here he was signed in free agency and he was and Mike Babcock made Ron Hainsey the first pairing right-hand defenseman. Lack of options aside, made him the first pairing right-hand defenseman despite being a left-handed shot and would not switch that pairing no matter what. He eventually sent Borgman to the AHL. And I, again, I, in favor of keeping Polak. And I was around the Marlies that time. And I can tell you that, that that could be argued that it derailed Borgman's career. That was, he was like, Andreas Borgman was a 22-year-old defenseman who was treading water and looking pretty good in, in sheltered usage in the NHL. And he was unexpectedly sent down and unjustly really sent down to the AHL. And although he should have been able to put that work in and, and develop like many other players have, that decision to choose Roman Polak over Andreas Borgman derailed Andreas Borgman's career. And then this was also when playing Frederick Anderson 60 games a year became a huge problem because he, as we'll get into the playoffs of this season, he was taxed incredibly and had a, had struggled in, struggled mightily in that first round series. And, and yada yada, Leo Komarov and all that. And then we get to the off-ice stuff. And this is where the Josh Levo saga began. And so now we're going from a guy of, of you know, Frank Corrado's caliber, who we know is not really an NHLer, to a guy that most people were pretty convinced could be a very decent, very, very good um, middle six offensive contributor given the chance. And Mike Babcock refused to give him a chance, refused to even... Um, essentially refused to to let him gain any momentum or f- even feel like a part of the team. And he played only 16 games that season when guys like Matt Martin and Dominic Moore played 50. He became the poster child, really, for the Mike Babcock doghouse. 
yeah, so we, we've moved back. We're jumping around a little oh, bit here. Oh, well, we're talking uh, about the 17-18 season. We're talking season. about 17-18 season. So Lou Lamorello's still there, right? So these moves are all happening in, in conjunction yes. with Lou Lamorello, right? But this is the Leafs' best season of all time. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, so there's. But it doesn't feel that way, though. And that's that, that's why I'm I'm saying this Babcock tenure is really confusing because this is the best season in a hundred years to the Leafs, and it still felt it's people still look back on it with with like not with admiration really with some confusing feelings with some conflicting conflicting feelings. See, I'm not no, I'm not necessarily with you on this, but like I I think you're right. I, I think you're seeing this is the beginning of the tug of war because. This is not endorsed by Kyle Dubas. All this stuff, all this, no way. all all the, the the decisions, the Zaitsev, the you know, we're playing Matt Martin, not playing Matt Martin, burying Borgman, all of that. But what Mike Babcock was doing at this time was he was coaching the team probably to the best of his ability or the way he thought, and mm. it was also getting designed. The roster was being constructed constructed in the way that he wanted i mean i'm sure yeah. he was in favor of zaitsev being a key part ron hainsey coming in guaranteed that he was all for that but these was also part of the maturation process of you know getting morgan riley to the place that he wanted to be as much as mike babcock had a big influence ron hainsey probably helped morgan riley come along as well uh even though we didn't you know there was a ceiling on how far those two could go it was probably pretty important to his development so uh this is the year where it was first real right the expectations, I guess, yes. after that really good year. But there was a lot of like, I think there was just a lot of cooks in the kitchen at this point. A lot mm-hmm. of opinions are being thrown out there. And that on the backdrop of these heightened expectations seemed to create a little bit more noise, right? But all, through all of that, the Maple Leafs played really well. 105 points, their best year. A lot of things were happening. They were trying to sort this out. And it was all leading up to the decision which was to come, which was Kyle Dubas over Lou Lamorello, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, this was sort of, this was a hard year to really break down because it was so, it went so well. But this was the first year that fans, uh, I guess, ones that are a little bit more, you know, into, you know, I guess, about the analytics and seeing things a different way, what have you, whatever you want to, however you want to put it. There was the first time there was a little bit of contentiousness between the fan base and some or factions of the fan base and Babcock because it was clear he was doing things a certain way when it looked like it could be done a different way. But I think this goes back to him wanting to do things slowly. He wanted to he this is the type of player that he wanted, these types of players that he wanted. He wanted to try and build uh his core and surround them by players that were going to show them the way, even though they were maybe a little bit past their prime or they had some limitations to their game uh, as well. Uh, But this was sort of through it all. It was this great season and it was just, it built up to that first round series against the Boston Bruins. There was no shame. I don't think in losing to the Bruins that year, Uh, this is probably where they should have been on their timeline because they overachieved the year before. Uh, It's a really strange season to look at, but there was a lot of things that pointed to the fact that, hey, Mike Babcock's doing it his way, and maybe this isn't necessarily the way he should be doing it. It, This was also, I think, the reason why, at least personally, I don't look back on this season as you know, the best in Leafs history, even though it statistically is, is because the taste in the mouth that everyone was left with was the playoffs, was against Boston, was the ga- another Game 7 loss that could have been prevented. Um, this is the it, first Game 7 loss. Yes, this is the first Game 7 loss of the Babcock year, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was one that could have, in a lot of eyes, my eyes specifically, but in a lo- the eyes of a lot of fans as well, and I'm sure the players too, that could have been prevented because this... 
we there's all we all talk about you know what was the first sign of my, of of Babcock's departure what really opened the door and this could be argued as another one because really this was where his in where I guess it all stems back to the ego but his inability to make in-game adjustments because right now like before it was all look at all these kids who are doing these crazy skill things these magical things with the puck we like we're not paying attention to the systems we're not paying attention to the breakout or anything we're just paying attention to how great they are and now with the expectations and now with the spotlight of boss and everything we're paying attention to how the leafs actually play hockey and it turns out that they played it in an immensely predictable and easily exploitable way and that's exactly what the bruins did because the 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 failure to counter the Marjoran, uh, Marshan Bergeron Pasternak line was huge, and although that was you know that's arguably the best line in hockey, um, that that trio torched the Leafs. David Pasternak, you know, made the Leafs his children. That all of the Leafs his children that series, and Babcock had no answer to it. He had nothing. He didn't. He had, and although there was the personnel issue there too, there's no able to do it now. Um, there was also there there was also the the Anderson was clearly fatigued as we talked about, um, and he put in Roman Polak to to keep pace you know with Boston's middle six, but this was also the systems were so stagnant. The Bruins anticipated the stretch pass. They knew everything. They could diagram the Leafs breakout all the time. And the fact that they had Ron Hainsey there, who, and this comes back to the fact that the Leafs were in the, in a playoff spot this season, pretty much, this happened two years in a row, but pretty much since, Janu- since January or, or mid-February. And Babcock didn't think to, to give Ron Hainsey, then I think he was 36, 37, a rest. And so when Ron Hainsey was was forced to you know essentially be the 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 top right hand defenseman in in the playoffs, he was gassed. And every single time the Leafs went to go move the puck out of the zone, they all attacked they all attacked Morgan Riley. So he knew that he had to fling it over to Ron Hainsey, who would botch that breakout. They were they they anticipated it like crazy. They clogged the middle because the Leafs' idea of breaking out was just throwing lobbing the puck into the middle of the ice and hoping that one of their players got it. And then you also look at the the ice time here, and this was became sort of like I think the nail in the coffin of his relationship with Austin Matthews was Matthews played 17 minutes and 32 seconds throughout this series, despite being the team's best player. Mitch Marner played 17 minutes and, and three seconds. Nylander under 16. Connor Brown played more than William Nylander in this series, and and all of these combined, and as well, this was also when they they acquired Thomas Placanitz midway through the season. I remember, and he had to after Kadri got that suspension, he had to play up in the in the middle six and. The Leafs had a. The Leafs were going into it. I think it was a game three or four at home against Boston, and shockingly, out of the blue, Patrice Bergeron is is an in, a late scratch for the game due to injury, and they lost that game at home. Mike Babcock couldn't get his squad together and go, the, like the boogeyman is not going to be in this game. Go win it in front of your fans. They lost it. They squandered it. That was the difference. It, all this was coming together, and what really kind of punctuated the end of this was after this game seven loss. We got the report that Mike Babcock had flown out to Arizona to have a conversation with Austin Matthews. And if you want to look at another kind of open the door moment for his his departure, that really set the tone because now the team's superstar, the face of the franchise, the coach feels he has the need to he needs to go out and fly out to Arizona and smooth things over after a disappointing playoff run. You mentioned Matthews ice time, obviously, in that uh, I, I don't know if you're talking about just the game seven or the entire series, but it's, there, that's there was, the average of the there series. Was, there was obviously cries of him not playing enough, but that goes back to my point of Babcock wanting to play the long game. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the re- that was main. I think that was the main reason why it wasn't as simple for him as just playing the stars more. He thought he believed that the team needed to build and and grow and complete the foundation. Right. Uh, it, the answer for him was never just to hide deficiencies. It was to 
It was to grow this thing in an organic way, to build up, to build everyone up. You use the line, you know, rising tide raises all boats. I guess that I guess that applies more to, you know, riding Matthews, but he really That's... wanted he really wanted to build every, he wanted to build a team. He wanted to find his next Luke Glendening that he could rely on for all those big minutes, right? Like I think that was that was part of it. I think the main issue in that season is they outperformed what they really were. I don't think they were a 105 point team. I don't think they were there really in their time like that yet. I think they overachieved a little bit. They set the expectations. I think it it, it sort of distorted what should have been the the legitimate expectations. I think that Boston Bruins team was just simply better than that Maple Leafs team. I think that was a decent that was a decent appearance in the postseason. Uh, you mentioned stagnating, you know, systems. I I think there is a little bit to that, but I think it was just the fact that he was not willing to, you know, just throw Matthews over the boards for 25 minutes because he believes in growing a complete team. I think that's one of the main takeaways and ultimately a main flaw from Babcock because he wasn't be able to get beyond that point uh, as a coach. If that is the case, then that is reprehensible. If you're a, if you're a coach of a professional hockey team, you get into the playoffs, your, jo- your goal should be to win. Your goal should not be, oh, let's lose because this loss will be good for our, you know, our build. No, if you're in the playoffs, anything can happen. It's the most cliche line in sports. Just make the playoffs and anything can happen. And specifically, it doesn't matter if the Bruins are better than the Leafs. The Leafs, the Leafs battled their way to a game seven. And, and you'd want to talk about luck? Luck. Game seven is the most chaotic moment in hockey. Anything can happen. You know, probabilities fly out the window. Wind shares fly out the window. You, your job, if you, if you're a red blooded human being and you go into a game seven and you, and your sole focus is not to do everything you possibly can to win that game, then you do not deserve to be, or you, at least you are not cut out to be in professional sports. That is absurd. And if he really did think, and this is, it's bringing up that rage in me again from that year, um, is that if you're, if, if you really thought that if, if Babcock really went in and, and had the opportunity to go, okay, we're down by a bit and at least we're up and they blew a lead. People forgot about that game. They blew a lead in, in embarrassing fashion. If he, if his idea was, okay, well, I'm not going to play Matthews in this game seven with our season on the line to essentially uh, be, because I think it would be good for his growth. You know what's good for you know what's good for a player's growth? Winning freaking hockey games, making it to the second round of the playoffs. That's pretty good for growth. The Toronto Marlies did use that in 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 the entire uh, in the framework of the organization. It worked out pretty well for all of the graduates who have succeeded with the Leafs so far. So that was I think the moment where he had these mediocre goals that his that where if you're if you're the highest paid coach in the league and you're coaching without the sole intention to win when it matters most, then what are we even doing here? He was coaching it like it was the old, you know, the Detroit Red Wings of old that had that third and fourth line that you could rely on to, with no problem. You could put them at, out there against anyone. And, he, and that was the way he coached the same team. He coached it the exact same way. I mean, that's not to his credit at all. It was actually much to his detriment. Uh, but that's he views this game one way. That's another theme. He is a one-note coach. He could use that one note to coach the hell out of a hockey team, but he only had the ability to do it one way. That was another example of why the failure to adapt, uh, the failure to do it a different way than he did it with the Red Wings is ultimately what, you know, what was the reason why he failed. And I think it just goes, it, that was definitely shown in that series. I believe, I think he, I wouldn't say he was afraid to put Austin Matthews out there, uh, but what I do sense is that he didn't, he believed that he had to shut down that line with, checking forwards 
You know what I mean? Like it, it, I don't think he, he liked that matchup at all. I think he steered clear from it. And the only reason why he could do that, uh, effectively is because they went out and got John Tavares the next year and he could put Austin Matthews against the David Krejci line and that's where they could get their success. So I think this was still a team, as I mentioned before, that just didn't quite measure up to the Boston Bruins and that's for a variety of reasons. Maybe they could have stolen that series if they if they trusted they Austin have. Matthews more in that situation. 100%. But it, it's... Uh, th- I, I, I know all the Leaf fans were all over him at that point. But I don't think it was until the next year that things were really bad. And we should mention that Nazem Kadri made things a lot more difficult when he took himself out of that series the first time. But at least we would have known. At least we wouldn't be here two years, three years later, talking about what-ifs. If Mike Babcock had trusted his stars, had played, even at the time, one of the best pure goal scorers in the NHL in a Game 7 where everything's on the line and it didn't work, at least we would have known. At least he would have known what his stars are capable of. And at least management and the players themselves and the fans would have known what would happen. And instead, he left everyone, the organization, the players, and you know the fans all together wondering what could have been. And that that is even more painful than the loss. Is what is is if you try your best and you like for example, my philosophy in university was I'm going to study my ass off for every exam. I'm going to be in a bunker for a, for weeks on end doing nothing but studying and if I fail that exam then I can live with myself because at least I gave it every ounce in my body and I just wasn't good enough but if I dick around and I don't and I don't pass that exam and I could have given more that will eat at me forever and that is essentially in the Leafs essentially or Babcock dicked around he didn't pull out all the stops he didn't he didn't put all his cards on the table when you're exact what in the one moment in sports when you're that is designed for you to do that then it it and that is that is I think the big the biggest philosophical difference that eventually preceded his downfall because if you're again if you're not coaching to win the game especially in the playoffs in a game seven, then what are you here for? Well, it's safe to say you approach university a little bit more uh, wisely than I did. (laughs) We'll just say that. Okay. I teed it up a little bit earlier. The John Tavares season. Uh, Again, all that that great season, 105 points or great on uh, at least any stat sheet that you'll look at. Um, But it wasn't Babcock that got rewarded for it. It was Kyle Dubas. He replaced Lou Lamorello in the chair. He went out and signed John Tavares. Obviously, we've mentioned that Babcock was all in on it at this point. This truly redefined the expectations. However, the Leafs actually failed to meet the same standard that they established the year before. Uh, And again, it was the Boston Bruins of the first round. Yeah, it was. This was um, the expectations, at least, were kind of like, yes, they signed Marlowe. You should win, yada, yada. This was like they just they signed John Tavares. They, They already had arguably the best young core in hockey and they added you know one a legitimate superstar the best free agent that had come on the market in at least my lifetime in the salary cap era to a deal he took less money to come there and he and he and he was essentially put next to the perfect complement to his skills in Mitch Marner and the Leafs finished with a worse record than they did the year before they were this was where the where Mike Babcock refused this was the I know we've said we've said this is where all the time in this, but this is where I think this season uh, what he should have been gone at the end of this. It, that's my opinion. But the fact that you know there were so many things that happened in the season. I mean, the, like again, they they got John Tavares and they finished with the worst record before. Um, 
You change the entire trajectory of the fan of the entire of the sorry franchise, and they don't do anything with it. And despite adding him, they're like a middling team. They're good. They're not great. William Nylander, you know, had the they they had the big contract holdout, and so and and that kind of overshadowed the team. And Babcock didn't like. I think that he handled it decently well, but then when Nylander came back, although he wasn't ready really that much, he never handled Nylander perfectly. Um, but this was where, again, like the the whole the whole player management hit hit a complete fever pitch because Josh Levo was then tr- was again Mike Babcock refused to play Josh Levo despite the fact that he's playing guys like Par Lindholm and Frederick Gauthier and Connor Brown and guys like that for significant minutes he thought though all those guys are better and more advantageous to a win than than um, Josh Levo which showed a fundamental disconnect with modern hockey and so they traded Josh Levo to Vancouver for Michael Carcone who you know fine AHL player but it's not Josh Levo Josh Levo immediately went on to put 18 points in 49 games with with uh, with the Canucks that season, he outscored uh, he outscored Gauthier and Lindholm both, and he put in eleven less than Brown did over the full eighty two. And then it came to Justin Hall, who's the most egregious example of of this doghouse ironclad doghouse, because the Leafs' biggest need at that moment was a puck moving right handed defenseman, and Hall was exactly that. And Mike Babcock scratched him seventy times. He almost ruined his career, and my, and he played Igor Orzhiganov fifty three games and Martin Rince in twenty four. Igor Zhiganov's the most forgettable player in Leafs history, I think, other than Parlindholm. So this this went to go this this showed that at least in that sort of like encapsulation, it it just showed that he just was not willing to change or or accommodate anything that his general manager was trying to give him. And then I'm sure we'll that wasn't even the the biggest thing because then we we get into the Muzzin and uh, Muzzin stuff, but like he like Ron Hainsey was still a top four defenseman even though he clearly wasn't. Nikita Zaitsev took an even bigger step back the year before, and yet Babcock still made him a top four staple. Patrick Marlowe took a huge step back, and and Babcock still played him 16 minutes a game. Didn't learn from the Anderson being taxed in the playoffs, so he kept playing him. Kept the stretch. Didn't even change. He, he got exposed in front of the entire world with his stretch passes in the playoffs. Didn't make a single change to that whatsoever. This was just... Mike Babcock essentially was going to slam his head against the wall until eventually he you know, had a had an epiphany and it just never came yeah this was this is the most interesting season i think because uh you know clearly the downfall or why it didn't work was because mike babcock and kyle dubas don't see things exactly the same way however they were both in on the john Tavares signing 100 and john Tavares gave but everyone them, should be on in john Tavares signing. i know that's i'm not that's that's 100 but what this team just got john Tavares. They deployed John Tavares perfectly. John Tavares played with Mitch Marner and Zach Hyman. And that line was one of the most dominant five-on-five lines that we've ever seen from the Maple Leafs. They were brilliant. And yet they didn't they didn't do better that season. So why? Why didn't they do better that season? I don't think it's as simple as Josh Levo not playing, Justin Hall not playing. There's two big things. Just two other big things. Mm-hmm. Two other big things would be William Nylander holding out until December 1st and never really having a season. That, yeah, was that was huge. Rough. Austin Matthews, you know, he was hurt for, but he didn't have. I mean, he still had a great. He was great when he was in the lineup. It was incredible. Uh, but he didn't have. Uh, just the the complete package wasn't completely there surrounding that Tavares line. There was Nylander in and out. Nylander not really there at all. Matthews in and out at times as well. Uh, but the other thing was that backup goaltender decision. So oh, another yeah. another thing that came up was for me was that Babcock was right about a lot of things. He, he was, was. Right, he was right about the fact that Austin Matthews is better with Zach Hyman. Uh, he was right about the fact that Garrett Sparks didn't belong. Uh, so that decision with Curtis McElhaney yeah. was definitely a big one uh, because they had really good backup goaltending the year before, and then 
they didn't have it the next year, and it forced them to drive Frederick Anderson into the ground. How much do you uh, think that that backup situation, like, how much do you think that that impacted? Because that happened right at the start of when, like, that was one of the first major decisions that Dubas had to make as GM, and he essentially chose his guy over clearly Babcock's guy, and that kind of exactly. drew a line in the sand. How much exactly. do you think that actually, like, torched their relationship? I think it was a big thing. I think they didn't see things completely eye to eye ever, obviously. I think they were dissenting opinions in the room. Do you think that was they, the spark, kind of? Oh, Perfect perfect use of sparks no, no pun intended uh no 100 i think it was big because the tavares thing just happened obviously they were both on board for that but immediately at the start of that season it didn't seem like they were on the same page at all and it was probably because of the backup thing and mm-hmm. and maybe if it was i don't know if it was despite kyle dubas but he ref- he just did not want to play his backup netbinder he he rode Fredrik anderson the entire season even when they didn't have to, when they were seemed firmed up in a fo- postseason position, they knew who they were going to play. And still, uh, they continued to play Frederick Anderson as much as possible. And I think that's when we really saw the, the negative impact of their goaltender playing so much in that postseason. Uh, but you mentioned those small things, right? Like it seemed like every little battle or the thing that could could be a battle became a battle because yeah. Mike Babcock wanted it to be a battle. He was put, He did not see things the same way and it just everything had to be a problem that didn't need necessarily have to be a problem there was no compromise from him in that season and we saw it with Justin Hall we saw it with Josh Levo we saw it with all these other players that he didn't that he didn't like that he didn't want to play and it was really you know what I mentioned the beginning of the end with Dubas when he was hired as GM for Mike Babcock obviously there was a there was some light in that with John Tavares but everything else that seemed to be going on uh, Mike Babcock wanted to put the blame elsewhere, and that came to a head when they were eliminated uh, by the Boston Bruins again after uh, another Game 7. It was also that he forgot his place, you know? And that happens when you are given, you know, the king's the keys to the kingdom and also given a seat at the table under a previous regime. But he, he forgot that he was the coach. He forgot that Dubas was his boss. And no matter what, you know, no one's going to agree with everything that every one of their bosses are going to do. But you know what you don't do? You don't step in front of cameras and tell people about it. You, you know, you, you go you go home and you tell your significant other or you talk to your dog about it. They're not going to tell anyone. It's going to be fine. But what Mike Babcock did was he went out and any time he any time that a, a move was made that he didn't agree with, he let he, he didn't keep it indoors. He didn't keep it insular. He didn't, he didn't, you know, if, if a player went out and badmouthed Mike Babcock, that player would be sent to uh, Madagascar. That's the, that's what the, the term that Don Cherry likes to use. Um, or that was used about Don Cherry when he did something. I don't know. Anyway, he would be, he would be jettisoned from the organization. I'm sure that that's, that's pretty much what happened with Brooke, Brooks like, um, and among others. But Mike Babcock had the free reign to go out in front of cameras and essentially belittle his boss, belittle the 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 performance of his boss, belittle the the accomplishments and 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 essentially like the 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 view, the organizational view of his boss. And there were no repercussions for it. He could just do it. He could just talk badly about Kyle Dubas and the moves he made and and what was going to happen. And so I think that was a big that was a big sort of 
a source of rot in in his tenure was that he his focus was turned from winning hockey games by any means necessary to winning these petty political battles to these chess matches indoors that really didn't need to happen and to be honest Dubis wasn't the instigator for these and so a coach when a coach loses his his sense of 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 place when he thinks that he is greater than his position very rarely are are is that situation tenable and we found out it eventually wasn't yeah, the open protesting of every little thing that was happening, uh, like he was doing everything through the media. Uh, the Jake Muzzin, you know, the complaining about Jake Muzzin's acquisition. Was, I want to get into that pretty, a little bit more too. In, pretty in remarkable. Oh, go ahead. Well, no, like with, with both of us, just because like, and Chris Chris Johnston has talked about this a lot because he was, you know, in Detroit when they were doing it. The team was like the getting Jake Muzzin is probably the best trade of the Dubas era other than maybe getting, he said that Zach Hyman was his first trade. So that's probably his best one. But uh, getting Jake Muzzin at no cost of the act uh, of like Mike Babcock kept saying, oh, our depth sucks. We need more depth. Well, Dubas went out and got him John Tavares and Jake Muzzin and sacrificed zero active roster um, assets to do it. He essentially like, yes, it was draft picks and prospects. Those prospects are doing absolutely nothing for the teams they are right now. Like Sean Dersey is a prospect who I think struggled in the OHL last year. And Carl Grundstrom is like a tweener. And that first round pick was like 25th or something that went to um la and meanwhile he was able to just essentially plop a franchise center and a top pairing defenseman on the roster and because that top pairing defenseman didn't shoot the way that mike babcock wanted him to shoot he went out in front of cameras on a day that's supposed to be a huge pr win for the organization drum up a ton of excitement around fans and also that the team was extremely excited for the players were buzzing apparently it was it was you know like they cut through the midseason malaise and they're all so excited to get started with muzzin and he essentially went we'll, we'll make it work a what does that say about uh what does that say to your general manager that he just that he just pulled off a a highway robbery of a deal to get you a guy with also another piece of term on his contract that seems to play the way Jake Muzzin also served as like a, a, a you know a waypoint between the two the, the ways that both Mike Babcock and Kyle Dubas wanted him to play. You know, like Mike uh, Kyle Dubas viewed hockey in a puck possession analytic like analytically inclined kind of style, high octane style, and that's what Jake Muzzin can play. And also Mike Babcock viewed it as like you know a grit and grind, and you know put your hard hat on. And Jake Muzzin had that quality too. So he acquired possibly the perfect defenseman for Mike Babcock. And he still went out and said, he doesn't shoot the way I want to. That's like a sweet, that's like in, in super sweet 16 when the parents get the kid of a, a Lamborghini and it's green instead of pink. And the kid throws a tantrum. That's what Mike Babcock did. And it, that, that was to me, at least the moment where I kind of dissociated and was like this guy, like, it's just a matter of time at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think that was evidence of the fact that anything that Dubas, it's just a failed relationship or a doomed relationship because anything Dubas was going to do, he was going to protest. And it, I think it most largely stemmed from the decision to cut bait with Curtis McElhinney. I think that's he lost, so petty. I think he lost trust in management uh, and he knew that that he had like he had he had worked with Dubas for previous seasons two or three at least uh, so we understand it how he viewed things so I think he was he thought he needed to dig in because he didn't want to go down that road and I think he knew that it was going to happen his way and he was getting more and more uh, I mean after that decision when he was probably ignored about the fact that he wanted McElhaney and and Dubas just said no I think that probably irritated him to no end because he 
at, at we mentioned like the, how drunk he was on power early. Mm. He 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 had such high belief of his place inside the organization that this was really going to bother him. So everything that Dubis did, he shot down. Uh, and it it got to the point where it's clear that these two had to have some sort of real discussion. I'm sure they had discussions all the time, but that they really had to hash things out. And I think they tried, but I think that just didn't work. I, I think mm-hmm. it was never going to work between these two guys. Uh, obviously, we we get to Boston and another loss, and we can go through uh, Babcock's performance uh, in that series. But it really just comes down to the fact that uh, Dubas and him were never going to get along, and and Babcock did not like the fact that he was reporting to a guy who was you know just past thirty years old and and uh, not seeing hockey the way or not seeing hockey and not wanting to play hockey uh, the way he wanted to play it. And that was the most apparent in the playoffs. That that second meeting with Boston in the first round was the most embarrassing stretch of Mike Babcock's entire tenure with the Leafs. Um, because essentially it was, if, if, if the cracks started to show in the series uh, the year prior, the this essentially was where the dam broke. I mean, they did exactly the same thing they did. Like Babcock did exactly the same things he did in the in the previous series that had lost him the series and except the team played better and they still lost it was you know the stretch passes were apparent again and they were exploited again Zaitsev and Hainsey played huge minutes again and were exploited again Brown and Marlowe played huge minutes again and arguably both of them were worse than the year before before and that really hampered the team and and again once again they had a, a prime opportunity at home to make their stamp on the series. Bergeron was out in Game 3 the year before. Now they had a home date in Game 6 with a 3-2 series lead. They could have closed it out that game, and they didn't. And they let it go to a Game 7 again, and I think a lot of people kind of knew, oh, geez, here we go again. And when it came to that Game 7 too, that was the nail in the coffin. That is when I think Kyle Dubas had fired Mike Babcock in his mind, whether or not the board would have let him, and that's when every fan had fired Mike Babcock in, in their minds too because Austin Matthews again I don't care if this is a building thing you have John Tavares on your on your roster your team is capped to the brim you have like this is a win now season and you and in game seven you're down two or uh, game seven no matter what you play Austin Matthews 18 minutes and 48 seconds Tavares 21 minutes and 19 seconds and Nylander 16 minutes with the season on the line they're down by two in the third period and Marlowe, Connor Brown, Frederick Gauthier are taking regular shifts with the team down by two. It was, I, that was, um, you know, to put on my fan hat in that moment was the most, was the angriest I've ever been watching the Leafs in my entire life. I remember I watched at a bar, it's before I was a media member, I watched at a bar, I was walking home, took a back alley, took it, stopped, it was, it was a abandoned alley, stopped and just let out a big just screamed the F an F bomb at the top of my lungs. Cause I was just, I, I was, it was, it was infuriating. And this is like, this was where Mike Babcock was all the flaws were, were shown. It's like when, when a uh, TV went from standard definition to HD and every wrinkle started to show up on everybody. This was, this was it. This was where there's no hiding. And even though he tried to, uh, the most striking thing for me, I was in Boston uh, covering the game, but the, the, the biggest thing. And, and when you, when you really, got the feeling that this was a little bit different was when Babcock just refused to take any blame for the loss. Uh, His, his defiance at that moment was, was really telling. It was, it was remarkable. I mean, he was defending himself 
to no end and refusing to take any of the blame when, as you mentioned, he had he deserved to take some blame uh, after that loss. I think that really, I mean, it drew the line in the sand again between these two guys where he just he just did not want to hear uh, that this was on him. He believed wholeheartedly that this was on management for not giving him the right team or playing the season out the way that it should have been played out. Uh, and that led to obviously discussion. It led to serious discussions uh, inside the Leafs boardroom about the future of Babcock. Uh, and whether you believe it or not, Kyle Dubas looked back on the performance in game five and what he saw from the Maple Leafs in game five as the reason why they gave him another chance to coach the team. Now, I believe that's probably, uh, you know, uh, an excuse for what actually happened, which was the fact that he could not sell the board on getting rid of Babcock, getting rid of this, uh, you know, Hall of Fame coach with $25 million remaining on his deal and only halfway through his contract. I believe that was probably the reason. Uh, but it definitely brought to light that these two were not getting along, that there was problems, that there had to be a conversation. And there was a conversation. And it changed over the course of the summer with those two coming back with almost reverse roles. Uh, with Babcock obviously he didn't want to take any blame after and Dubas took all the blame after. And then when they came back the next summer, uh, Babcock was open and, and saying, you know, how he, he has to perform better. And that part of it was on him and that Dubas didn't want to take ownership of the team and said that it was everybody's team. And it, it, the way they flipped roles, it was clear that they just couldn't decide which place the other was going to take. They could not work. They couldn't find a way to make it work between them. It just never seemed to be congruent. Uh, and then obviously we went into the 2019-20 season where it quickly fell apart. Babcock's refusal to take blame was, it was downright Trumpian to me. It was, it was insane. It was like a pandemic's going around him. He fired the, he fired the CDC and he's like, well, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. It's great. Like it was, what if, and at the same time, if that game five thing is real, if 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 a one game sample size was the differential there between uh, you know firing this coach and essentially wasting another season because the decision to not fire Mike Babcock torpedoed the the 2019-20 season that we're in right now, um, then that's on Dubis and that's his greatest failure as as a National Hockey League GM. Um, but this was. Yeah, I, I I mean I agree with you because that like that was a, certainly a huge factor in the you know the the results not being what they should have been this season. But I truly believe that he made up his mind. Uh, he wanted to move on, but mm. he just wasn't given the ability to. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's just, this was, uh, the fact that they let him touch the team moving forward, let him influence the decisions moving forward, that was, like, after what happened in, in that Game 7, I mean, what else did you expect him to do? Did you, like, that wasn't purely financial. Like, it, like the decision to keep him on, there was no there's no way you can convince me that there was any that had anything to do other than money it was uh if you like all those board members you put true serum into them and they say do you think that toronto maple leafs after what just happened might like will win a stanley cup with my babcock i think all of them would have said no but then there's the 25 million dollars left on his contract and there's you know the he's a hall of famer we can't you know stuff like that and so it's this was uh, it, 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 it's it's interesting to see just the thud of an exit that Mike Babcock's uh, tenure like that it, it ended with because he came in with such fanfare and by the time he was done he was essentially you know led out of town with a by by pitchforks and torches. 
Yeah, I mean, you could tell there was a discussion, right? So Dubas and Babcock probably sit down shortly after the season. Uh, Dubas gave a non-answer about his future, which sort of raised eyebrows uh, and all that. And and then it was quickly deemed after that he was going to move forward with the team, probably after uh, what we speculate would be, you know, something in the boardroom. But that didn't mean that Kyle Dubas bend it at all or or would sort of you know move a, or compromise in any way or move closer to Babcock and see things his way because he went out and traded Nazem Kadri right after and like mm-hmm. I mentioned the long game and and the pride that Babcock had in a guy like Kadri and Riley and when he's raw after all this like he lost McLean he was so upset about it and when you're robbed of a player like Nazem Kadri who was who meant so much to Babcock and it was one of those foundational guys for the growth of what he believed was going to be, you know, this slow build of a perfect team that he wanted to put together and go after the Stanley Cup. You take away Nazem Kadri, such an important piece. Obviously, he wasn't going to be happy about it. Uh, and I mentioned that, you know, Morgan Riley was one of the only people that he thanked on his way out. He really, as much as he, like, had, you know, pride over Austin Matthews and wanted Austin Matthews to become this, like, elite two-way center, and he challenged him to do it and all that, he, he only was able to reach the finish line, it seemed, with one player, which was Morgan Riley. And so essentially at the end of the day, we have to kind of discuss what uh, what Babcock's legacy was. I mean, it's just, like we said, it, it comes full circle. Uh, it, it was one of the most uh, successful coaching tenures in franchise history. He's the fifth most wins in franchise history. And yet, when all said and done, I don't think there are a lot of fans that look back on the Mike Babcock era with uh, and, and say that it's a resounding success. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a really complicated. It's and it's not going to be you know determined just yet. I mentioned that he raised the bar for coaches, and that's part of his legacy. But as it stands now, his his failures outweigh you know the path that he put the franchise on. I believe, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately, I think his legacy will hinge on the f- future success of the Maple Leafs. With success, in many respects, you know, I, I think it's time dependent as well. Like if success comes immediately under Keith. It hurts Babcock, but if it comes a little later and his imprints are still on the team, like Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner are obviously still around, I think he will receive some deserved credit for what he did. And if Dubas fails, if everything that Dubas stands for mm-hmm. proves to be misguided and the same failures are repeated, then there's going to be some vindication there for Mike Babcock and the people that are anti-Dubas or will grow to be anti-Dubas will believe a little bit more in what Mike, Mike Babcock was trying to do. So it is complicated. And I don't think we can can define it just right now. Mm-hmm. But I think we should close it on this last question. Would you have done it the same? Would you have hired Mike Babcock in 2015? I believe it was again. We've gone through Yes, this. it was 2015. 2015, yeah. if you could make that decision, would you have made the same decision? 100%. At the time, he was the perfect thing for the organization. He is responsible for a lot of the bedrock that this or that you know this current team is succeeding under, and uh, just the organization in itself is succeeding um, with, or on top, I guess, not under. Um, but at the same time, they're like I would have fired him after Game Seven. I think that I think that every coach is a shelf life, and I think that the the test of a true organization is realizing and identifying when that shelf life is, because I'd much rather be early in that regard than too late. And I think that especially because they had someone in the wings waiting in Sheldon Keefe, um, in it, like who would have been the most hotly um, you know, sought after coach outside the NHL if they, if they had allowed him to seek employment elsewhere. 
it was, uh, you know, like, I think that was the right move. But back in 2015, with the state of the Leafs, the way that with the trajectory of the organization and which what Mike Babcock's specific skills were designed for, he was the perfect fit. And he was essentially like the, the Dale Talon to Sheldon Keefe's Stan Bowman. And that Dale Talon assembled a lot of the, the pieces for this Chicago Blackhawks mini dynasty that they had in the early, you know, 2010s. And yet it was Stan Bowman who really sought that through because Dale Town had reached the end of his, his tenure and was fired before they won that first Stanley Cup. So it, he, was, he, he, he kind of pushed them, and it was, it was, uh, it's going to be Keefe, I think, that guides them home. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what we learned with Babcock is that there is an expiration date on everything. I mean, mm-hmm. for him, that came after years of dominance at a Stanley Cup in Detroit. And I think the exact same thing happened, just without the obvious success in Toronto, it was time. It ran its cycle. Uh, even if there was only one truly disappointing result, he got to the point where it was it was over, or at least one truly disappointing result in my eyes. They got to the point where this thing ran its cycle, but I would have done it again. I mean, you look at where they were when they first brought on Mike Babcock to where they are now. Uh, they, they've, you know, they've grown so much. These players have grown into legitimate superstars, many of them. Uh, and they're at the point where they have a roster that is – that can continue to be manipulated every so often uh, to, to really, you know, challenge for Stanley cups for year to years to come. And the, the franchise was not going to take that next step until they had a coach and GM that saw things the exact same way. Mike Babcock helped grow these players. Now it's time for everything to happen in concert as they move forward and try to win that Stanley cup. So the time was up, but I would have done it again. I probably just wouldn't have, you know, give them all that guaranteed money because four years was all that they really needed out of Mike Babcock. Couldn't have said it better myself, honestly. Okay, that wraps it, I guess. I mean, we've gone over too long, so we, uh, I won't uh, belabor the point here, but we'll be back at some point. There is encouraging news in the NHL. Mm-hmm. It might not be the best news for society. We'll have to weigh that when the time comes. But I'm, uh, I'm a little bit more optimistic now that we're going to see hockey and we can do some actual reaction podcast, which is the main point of this podcast in the first place. So uh, we've done our deep dive on that, Mike Babcock, and then all that's left to say is uh, what you usually say to close the show. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.